This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Um, I'm a student debt striker. I've been with the Debt Collective since 2015. Um, I attended a predatory for-profit college. Um, and in 2011, uh, I was really on my own um, as far as trying to navigate how to not pay these loans from an institution that was fraudulent. Um, from a moral standpoint, I didn't want to co-sign them, you know, committing fraud against people. Um, so I was reaching out to senators, uh, attorney generals, not really getting any sort of a headway on that. Um, and then in 2015, I met with the Debt Collective, um, and it's been truly life-changing to go from a stance of feeling deep shame over my debt to feeling empowered by my debt. Um, because alone, our debts are a burden, but together, they do make us powerful. Um, and together, you know, if you owe $100,000 to the bank, the bank owes you, but if, you know, 100000 of us owe money to the bank, then we collectively own the bank, um, which is kind of what the Debt Collective is about. It's like using our debt as collective power um, and leveraging tactics around that um, that debt so that we can make political policy changes um, and have real power um, when we come together. Um, so the Debt Collective is the nation's first uh, union for debtors, and we're organizing with debtors across the country to fight back against a capitalist economic system that plunges regular people, um, especially members of low-income communities and people of color, into overwhelming debt. Student debt for education, soaring rental costs for housing, debts for medical care, for basic utilities, and even for incarceration. These unjust debts are vectors of social and economic inequality, and we're dedicated to abolishing all of them for everyone through collective struggle. Um, the Debt Collective was actually started uh, and had been Occupy Wall Street. So it started um, as the Occupy Student Debt Movement um, in 2011. In 2012, they expanded the, the efforts um, into the Rolling Jubilee. And Rolling Jubilee actually bought $32 million um, of debt on the secondary market and abolished it for people. Um, so it actually ended up uh, being a portfolio of medical, student, payday loan, and probation debt that was canceled. Um, and then also in 2012, uh, the Debt Collective, um, which was then Strike Debt, uh, wrote a book called the Debt Resisters Operations Manual, um, and there will be a link on the handouts that you have for that resource for free. Um, oh, actually, they're going to be up here. I'm um, sorry. Um, but that will give you a resource um, to actually like fight back in a practical way. Um, so let's see. So the Rolling Jubilee, when they bought up the debt for $32 million and canceled it, um, it was meant to be as a tactic rather than a solution. Um, it was successful because it showed how little debt costs on the secondary market, um, and it kind of demonstrated the social nature of debt. Debt is something that we as a society live with, but it's just as easily something that we can refuse to live with. 
Um, so the debt, um, the Rolling Jubilee was also an opportunity to politicize the experience of debt. Um, and it was never meant to be an end um, of itself. Um, I don't know if anybody has ever seen the John Oliver episode where he bought a bunch of debt on the secondary market and canceled it. They didn't offer any solutions. Um, they actually, you know, collaborated with the debt collective to, you know, have the information, but then didn't offer any solutions on what do you do next. They just canceled it, and that was that was done. It was a feel-good moment, but it didn't get us any closer to a solution. Um, so this tactic did help us though to get to, to the systemic root of the problem. Um, in 2012, we also, um, April 25th in 2012, we hit what was one trillion day, one T day. And that's when student debt in this country hit one trillion dollars. And that was April 25th, 2012. We now have student debt sitting at $1.75 trillion. We are about to hit two T day, and that's gonna be a very sad day when we, when we do hit it. Um, but I'm hopeful, um, you know, uh, in this fight when I started in 2015, um, I would do interviews where people would laugh at me. They'd be like, you're a deadbeat, you know, go pay your bills. And we still get that, but not as much at all. You know, people laughed at us. They said that the idea of debt cancellation was pie in the sky. Um, and we've had major victories. Um, we've had just now announced $10,000 of cancellation and then $20,000 of cancellation for Pell Grant recipients. Um, we've had billions of dollars secured for for-profit students from Corinthian colleges, from ITT Tech, uh, now Westwood colleges. There's currently a um, lawsuit that's called Sweet First Cardona that started at Sweet First DeVos, which is actually born out of the borrower defense process, um, which the debt collective helped to politicize. It was a before you know the debt collective got involved with the borrower defense process, only like five people had filed. Um, to date, hundreds of thousands of people have now filed for the borrower defense, and it was basically a way to assert that you've been defrauded by your college. Um, the Department of Education didn't even have a form on their website or any real process for anyone to actually file. There wasn't a lot of information. So the debt collective actually made a form on their website that had all the legalese back-end language for every single state so that borrowers could then file and have the necessary legal language on the back-end uh, to assert their borrower defense claims. Um, so we have had a ton of victories, um, and we're going to keep on fighting. We just recently launched our 50 over 50 campaign. So it's debtors who are over 50 years old, um, who actually, um, on average, debtors that are over 50 have, on average, um, $125,000 in debt. Um, and now that's up to 400 people that have vowed to go on strike um, once payments resume. Um, and I'm going to close with one of our fellow um, activist um, and debt collective members quotes. Um, she recently said that Biden's cancellation hasn't achieved a goal. It has confirmed a method, and that's that organized debtors have power. And we do. Um, organizing works, and I've seen that time and time again in this movement. Using our debt as power is, you know, a way that we can move forward. And I'm going to pass it on to you. And, and I'm going to go into what this, this method is, which I know a lot of folks here are probably at least somewhat familiar with. Um, but it's it's really wonderful to be in this room full of comrades and uh, very grateful to, to be in solidarity with you all. Um, and I want to I want to start with asking everyone to do a quick show of hands. Um, how many people in this room have some form of debt? Wow. So, and there's student debt, medical debt, debt that's on a credit card that you won't pay off at the end of the month, utilities debt, rent debt, yeah, it's all of us. 
Um, <laughs> debt is a pervasive feature of life today in this country. Um, household debt is about 80% of American GDP, and the average American adult will die $65,000 in debt. Um, and this is because we're forced to debt finance our basic needs, goods that should be public, like healthcare, like education, like housing. Um, and it, it traps us in these cycles of indebtedness that, that basically ensure that a very small percentage of people are growing extraordinarily wealthy off of trading on our debt um, as we struggle to make ends meet and sort of live under, under this, uh, this threat um, of, of being beholden to creditors, to debt collectors, and so on. And these debts, of course, uh, reproduce and intensify existing inequalities. They are incredibly racially charged. Um, black and brown people in this country uh, have experiences, they, or they have an experience of debt that, that is um, fundamentally different from, from that of white people. And it's, it's something that we need to, I think, take into account in any organizing work that, that we attempt to do around indebtedness. Um, and so the, what the Debt Collective believes is that a point, debt is a point where individual experience can be transformed into collective resistance. Um, and that it's therefore a key locus uh, of struggle on the left and, and an opportunity to build some real power on the left. Um, Amy, I think, uh, just shared one of the, the things that we like to, to share quite frequently, um, which is that alone our, our debts are a burden, but together they give us power. Um, individually, debt is overwhelming, it's isolating, it's alienating, um, but if we, if we come together and learn to leverage our debts um, as a collective force, we can actually mount a challenge to the system that produces them. Um, and, and we can help fight for a system in which these different goods and services, healthcare, higher ed, um, are actually public goods that everyone is entitled to and that nobody needs to go into debt to have. Um, and so to do this, we, we need to dismantle some of the most pervasive myths about debt. Um, which, of course, uh, I think the, the, the strongest one is the idea that we are in debt because we live beyond our means, um, that debt is a matter of personal responsibility, that it's an individual moral failure. And that is not true, of course. Um, I mean, the reality is that this structure of, of debt is a feature of a political economic system in which financial institutions and markets have taken on increasingly large roles and in which our debts are assets that are traded on the market, speculated on, um, to provide enormous profits um, to, to different groups and figures in the finance world. Um, and it also means, of course, that our personal finances are tied to volatile global financial markets, um, as we all saw very acutely um, during 2008 and uh, the following years. Um, and what this, what this economic system is called is financialism. Um, and it's, it's a structural failure, not a personal one. Um, it's, it's an extractive system that relies, um, rather than relying on production, uh, as wealth generation historically has, it relies on speculation 
and on asset trading um, to generate wealth. And I'm going to hand it to my colleague Renee right now to, to talk a little bit about how exactly we got here with the historical process that has landed us in this uh, system of financialization has looked like. Thank you, Lindsay, and hi, everyone. Good morning. Uh, I myself am a student debtor. I think I owe something like $64,000 in debt, um, although I think I did go into default uh, within a few years after graduating university. So anyhow, uh, very much a, a topic close to my heart. Uh, but, you know, again, when we talk about the issue of debt and organizing around debt, we have to kind of look at the long durée, right? Well, how did we get here to begin with? I think Lindsay has already touched on that a little bit. Uh, and really, I think we have to talk about concepts that are interrelated, but that we oftentimes treat as though they're different, right? When we talk about debt, we talk about that here within the Debt Collective. We also talk about things like financialization, and we act as though these two things are not part and parcel of the same process, right? What is that process? First and foremost, the financial industry and the states that have regulated it have always wanted to have a deregulated sort of system uh, for finance. Uh, famously, in the 1950s, uh, we had the creation of the euro dollar uh, market in Europe, uh, which meant the deregulation around how you could uh, actually have capital controls in places like uh, Europe and outside of the United States generally at a time when those countries were awash uh, in dollars. You've had since the 1970s an increase in the number of uh, or the deregulation of different industries when it comes to the financial markets. Housing, actually, the area that I kind of work on the most. Uh, is an example of that, uh, where you've had a differentiation in the kinds of loans that you can actually uh, cut and the types of regulations that the banks themselves had to hold themselves to to be able to uh, give those loans to begin with. In the 1970s, though, we started, we got to a very crucial moment, right, in the post-war period. By the 1960s, we started to see a crisis of profitability and capitalism. Uh, that started to manifest itself with essentially a breakdown in the ability of the developed world economies to be able to produce the type of surplus wealth that they needed to keep growth going uh, in these economies. You saw an increased militancy in the power of labor. Uh, that meant, yes, uh, unionization, but more importantly, I think, a kind of a radicalization of the labor movement in different parts of the world and the developed world. Uh, and so what you got, of course, in response to that, was an attempt to do a couple of things at the same time, both of them that I think we're all kind of suffering from today. Number one, and the most important bit, was the disciplining of labor, right? We know this because, again, uh, by the 1980s, you started to see a fight back to crush the power of the labor unions. This was it, something that you saw, yes, in the United States, most acutely, perhaps, in the United States, but you saw it also increasingly in places like Western Europe, uh, where you uh, had the, the you know, union regulations or union power itself being challenged by right-wing governments. And often, we should say, very honestly, increasingly social democratic governments in those countries as well. That also looked like an attack on the purchasing power of the working class in these places. It, of necessity, meant an attack on the purchasing power of these uh, places, right, of the developed world. It looked like, of course, the offshoring of production, as Lindsay has already uh, spoken about, that we oftentimes talk about when we talk about neoliberalism, right? The idea that we're going to have to move manufacturing uh, offshore to places where labor uh, market prices are much cheaper. We're going to go and try to uh, get garments uh, to be made uh, at first in places like Mexico, but then, of course, uh, Southeast Asia, uh, and then uh, more beyond that. 
what you then got, obviously, for workers in the developed world, like in the United States, was a, a scramble, right? As these jobs are decimated in the United States, but also, again, throughout the developed world, an attempt to move uh, labor into other spheres, other types of, of, uh, of growth, right? Of other types of economic markets. It meant, of course, moving or increasing the share of services in industry. What did that look like, though, or how did the finance industry play a role in that? Finance, at some point, had to fill a very specific role. It had to play the specific role of being able to recycle the, uh, the, the uh, capital that was starting to flow more freely across the, developed world, across the world, generally speaking, but importantly, from the developing world and or commodity-rich places like the oil uh, states of uh, the Middle East and uh, you know, parts of Latin America, etc. That money would then be recycled in the developed world itself, and that made, of course, things like the cost of capital, the cost of loans, basically, cheaper for a lot of folks in the developed world. The consequence was we, working class folks, are going to be told that you can't actually fight for stronger wages. You don't need labor unions to be able to maintain your ability to be able to, to buy yourself the things that you need, the services that Lindsay was talking about earlier, whether it be to pay for college or pay for medical uh, services to be able to pay for your housing. But we are going to allow you to be able to, we're going to start to be able to continue to grow our economies, but this time we're going to do it through debt. That is ultimately what we're talking about when we're talking about financialization. It means increasing the, the, the space, the need of finance to be able to, to creep into ever larger sections, ever more uh, parts of the economy to be able to continue growth in the developed world. Within housing, again, where I uh, work on, you started to see the state itself, the federal government by the early 1980s, uh, create these elaborate financial institutions or, or uh, mechanisms like uh, collateralized mortgage obligations, these exotic financial instruments uh, that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mae actually, uh, Freddie Mac, sorry, uh, created to be able to, to uh, finance the purchases of homes. These processes have only gotten worse with time. But with them, not only have they gotten worse in the sense that our debts have increased, it also means that we've seen increasing types of crises, economic crises, a large part of which have been dependent on that growth system based on debt. By the 1980s, of course, we saw the savings and loans crisis. In the early 90s, we suffered a, an economic contraction that in places like where I come from, LA, Southern California, I hope someone else is here, from Southern California, we saw uh, an economic crisis that led to a, a fall in real estate prices. Uh, you would think, of course, that after two different crises that we would try to change tack, we didn't. What then happened, of course, we had the dot-com bubble in the 2000s, again, oftentimes ascribed to this kind of process of financialization. And then, of course, for a lot of us who radicalized at a certain point in our lives, 2008, where we had the, the mother of all collapses with the, the fall of the, the, uh, the housing market, right? We're in a, in a place where now, despite these ever-increasing dangerous situations, in a situation where people are more indebted than they've ever been, where states themselves, whole countries, are more indebted than they've ever been. The narrative of debtors as people who are living beyond their means is the same sort of message that's applied to you and me in this room, but it's also applied to, the, to folks in the developing world, to entire countries, to Greece a decade ago during the European economic crisis. It is increasingly that the, the form of, of social control, frankly, that I think it, it, it demonstrates how we have to be able to impose a certain level or a type of ordering mechanism based and in and around debt. 
I just want to close, and I know I've taken up quite a bit of time. Uh, fairly recently, the World Economic Forum, uh, you know, it's a lot of very rich people in Davos who meet up in Davos, Switzerland. Um, they released a, a video, I believe it was like a year ago or two years ago, during the, uh, during the pandemic, uh, the beginning of the pandemic, they had a video that was meant to be kind of like an ad. And it showed a, a smiling, very handsome man. And the, the caption on it read something like, you, you know, in the future, you will own nothing and you will be happy about it. For any of us who are renters, for those of us who are uh, heavily indebted to pay, or pay off our mortgages, who are indebted to be able to pay for our student uh, our education, for all of us who go into bankruptcy to be able to pay for life-saving emergencies, we really understand what that means, that increasingly we are going to own nothing, that increasingly we're, gonna, we're, gonna, uh, we're not going to own anything, but we're going to owe quite a bit moving forward. That is the process of financialization and the control, the, the ordering mechanism of debt that we've seen over the last 50 years that is only getting worse. And it is precisely for that reason that we have to organize as debtors in the different spheres of life where debt you know, rules our lives if we're going to make any progress moving forward. I actually want to pass it on over now to Amy. I'm very sorry, folks, we're going on a little extended rant that we're going to talk about how financialization and debt actually works uh, in different areas of our life. Um, so I kind of focus on student debt. Um, for those that you uh, that joined a little bit later, um, I'm Amy Schneider. I am a student debt striker with the Debt Collective, um, and I've been on strike since 2011. Um, so student debt, you know, now we have these exorbitant triple-figure, you know, student debts that are a common thing in this country. That kind of debt did not exist, you know, a couple decades ago. Um, it was through financialization that got us to this point. It was a bipartisan effort. Um, it wasn't, you know, it the major parties in this country like to blame each other for these things, but really both both major parties had a role to play in this. Uh, Biden repealed bankruptcy. We had Reagan who attacked the public university um, system in California and started charging tuition in California um, as a way to prevent people from organizing on campus and to keep organizers out of campuses. Um, so tuition was meant as a way, um, he basically said, if we charge tuition, they're not gonna go to school and organize. They're gonna be there, they're gonna have to pay, and you know, actually focus on their schoolwork. So he was just trying to smash all of the political movements at that time, everybody that was trying to organize for better and organize within their communities in California, um, that pretty much got abolished and wiped out um, in his eyes when he started charging tuition. Um, and um, right now, we, because we do have such a high amount of student debt, people are unable to pay for their other debts, right? All debt is intersectional. Um, so we have people who are in uh, you know, financial debt for student debt who can't pay medical bills. We have people who have medical bills who cannot pay their student debt. Um, and it's left people you know, with this choice, do I even want to go to college? Is college a worthwhile investment? Well, yes, it, you know, people have a right to education. Education should be a right. But in this country, we've, we've financialized it. We've made it out of reach. Um, it's now, you, know, you have to be able to afford to go to college or you have to go into exorbitant amounts of debt in order to do so. Um, it's stopping people from being able to start businesses. It's stopping people from starting families. It's stopping people from, you know, purchasing homes and all of these things that they can't do because they don't have the financial power to do so. Um, when bankruptcy protections got uh, removed from student debt, it really gave rise also to the for-profit colleges and allowed them to start charging whatever they wanted for students, for educations that weren't even actually valid educations. 
Um, so students are sitting there being churned out for worthless degrees for hundreds of thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars, with no marketable value. Um, I went to a for-profit college, and there's actually been employers that have written uh, on their job listings, we won't hire people from this college, or they won't even look at the resumes. There's certain nursing students that have gone to different nursing colleges um, that have literally been told, no, we can't even hire you because your college was a sham. So these people have tens of thousands of dollars worth of debt for an education that's gotten them nowhere. Um, I know a lot of people who have had debt um, who have already paid more than what their initial balance was because of the way that interest rates work. Um, I have a friend that's out in California. He had originally $98,000 worth of student loans. Um, he's paid, I believe, $97,000 on that, and he still owes $91,000 because almost all of that went to interest. Um, the way that interest rates compound on student loans um, is criminal. Uh, there's almost no way to get out of that debt. You're paying on time every month and you're getting nowhere with it, um, which is what is leading people to default. Um, there's so many people that don't even realize that they can use their default as political power. If you're defaulting on your own, nobody cares. But if you join with another group of debtors and you claim that that default is you on strike, that gives you political power. If you're on a zero dollar um, income based repayment plan, you're already on strike. You might as well politicize that because you're not paying anything. Um, right now we have the pandemic pause. You could declare that you're on strike um, because you know, you're know you not paying right now. Um, and debt strikes do work, so I have seen that. Um, in 2015 when we had the first uh, Corinthian 15 debt strike, um, it started because Corinthian colleges, um, they ran uh, Everest, healed biotech colleges. They used to be uh, commercials late at night for these colleges. Uh, go to college, do something with your life. Like really trying to send that message that all of us were delivered um, since childhood that you have to go to college. You have to do this to make a life for yourself. Um, and these students did that and they found that their school was a scam. You had nursing students going to Corinthian who were using veterinary supplies um, in their clinicals. Um, you had students teaching themselves and teaching you know, other students how to even do the things that the teachers were not teaching them. Um, so those students, it started with the, the Corinthian 15. Um, it was spearheaded by um, one of my fellow strikers, Nathan Horns. Um, and they decided, hey, we're not gonna pay this. You know, this school defrauded us. We're just gonna go on strike. And they made that proclamation and they politicized it. So they started working with the debt collective and um, that's when the debt collective uh, on their website started to kind of, um, they had the borrower defense to repayment form, which now you have on the Department of Education website. Um, and that's completely modeled off of what the debt collective had built uh, years ago. Um, and those 15 students that declared to go on strike, that was the first time that anybody had really tried to politicize the borrower defense to repayment process. Um, and that strike group quickly grew to the Corinthian 100, the Corinthian 500, and then other for-profit college students started to come into the fold. Um, that's kind of when I joined up in 2015. The first uh, major thing I ever did with the Debt Collective was we crashed um, a student uh, financial aid conference in New Orleans. Um, and they were basically, the idea of this conference was the big idea in education. And their big idea was like refinancing loans. And we came in there with our own, um, like, just really impressive uh, tactic where we made up our own documents. We copied their Twitter um, with like one character difference. Um, and we basically kind of took over their hashtag and politicized this idea that free college and debt cancellation was actually the big idea in education. Um, and these financial aid advisors, 
with our student aid money are having this big conference. They threw a parade for themselves in New Orleans. Um, so there is a whole parade of these student financial aid people like having a big party in the streets, and we crashed that. We interrupted their parade. We brought out these giant TV screens, um, and we started handing out uh, our own swag and our own um, giveaways that had the big idea um, on them, and we were giving them to their conference attendees. So every single picture that they had from their conference had our cancel student debt and college for all stuff on there. Um, it was really awesome. Um, it was a great introduction to you know the world of the debt collective and what you know resistance can look like because I think a lot of times um, people think you know political actions have to be you know like kind of a depressing thing I guess in the mainstream, but I don't think that it has to be that way. I feel like protests should go hand in hand with joy, with art, with celebration because capitalism in itself wants us to be depressed. They thrive on that. That's how they make money off of us. They sell us these dreams, go to college, pay all this money. You know, they want us to not be joyful. So I think an important part to add to any protest is that joy. Um, and as far as how we can confront student debt, I think, you know, just keeping on organizing, right? We have to organize. We have to go on strike. Um, going on strike is, it, it can be scary, but, you know, you have options to where you're not, you know, destroying your credit. Um, so you can do, you know, $0 IDR. You can, if you're already on default, like I mentioned earlier, um, that's already a strike. There's also deferments, forbearances. There's ways to go on strike in a way that doesn't completely financially ruin a person uh, and do it um, intelligently and like in a way that you are informed of your rights and that debt is no longer a leverage over you, but it becomes a power because you are informed of what they're doing to you. So you can play their game by their rules um, in a way that benefits yourself. Um, and one of the great things that we're also going to, um, which is also listed on our handout up here, and um, is a great tool that I'll mention probably several more times throughout this, is the Debt Resisters Operations Manual. It's a pr um, it was written by Strike Debt in 2012, and it's a practical guide um, on how to actually resist your debts in all of these different financial spheres. So there's a chapter on student debt, there's chapters on credit card debt, auto loans, housing debt, um, and in the back of the glossary, there's actually like letters that you can send to creditors um, in, in a way that can actually assert your rights um, and become more formed and more um, prepared to fight these debts. Um, and I'm going to pass it over to Renee. I already spoke a lot, so I'm going to try to keep mine uh, fairly limited. But you know, I want to talk a little bit about like housing work and why it is that we kind of organize in this space. You know, uh, when we talk about housing debt, we're really kind of talking about the two different types of debt, right? For mortgage holders. Again, when I talked about the 2008 crisis, we should remember that it was uh, pr primarily black and brown folks, right, uh, householders who lost their homes. It's why uh, net, uh, net worth or net wealth uh, in this country for black and brown folks has fallen to practically zero for black folks actually to net zero practically um, across, um, across the country. Whereas for Latinos, uh, for people like my family, um, net worth is also approaching zero and probably will within the next 20 years. The other side of that, though, looks like uh, renters and, and tenants who face situations where they can't afford to pay their rent. Uh, because of the pandemic, obviously millions of people lost their jobs. They ended up accumulating, racking up tons of rental debt. Um, as of now, right now, there are still millions of people in this country, despite the fact that uh, the federal government passed a rental relief uh, package as part of a number of uh, laws, including the CARES Act, in 2020 to be able to create a rental assistance fund. There are still millions of renters in this country who can't afford to pay the rent that they owed in 2020 during the pandemic. That's to say nothing, of course, of folks who can't afford to pay the rent, period, uh, and have never been able to do so. 
Uh, in places like California, where I'm from, but also in most of our major cities, renters tend to be uh, rent burdened. That is a, a term that is used by HUD to define anyone who pays 30% of their uh, income towards rent. For the renters in this room, how many of you, if you can raise your hand, are paying at least 30% of your income on rent at the moment? Fair few of you, right? In fact, in a lot of our major cities, something like 30% of uh, people are severely rent burdened, which means that they spend at least half their income on rent. We should not be shocked at the people who are the ones who are paying that level of rent. It is predominantly black and brown folks in particular uh, because they are the backbone of the working class in this country. As a result of that, they are the folks who are uh, most severely impacted by that. Now, what does that look like then on a day-to-day -day basis? Uh, as part of a lot of my political growth, I always talk a lot about gentrification. Uh, I like to tell people that gentrification doesn't look like a middle-class, you know, white person in particular, you know, to folks, uh, riding around on a fixie bike in your, in your town and buying a coffee. That is not what actual gentrification is. Gentrification is simpler, it's more uh, uh, basic to understand. It's basically the replacement of poor people, poorer people, and in particular black and brown folks, because they are uh, preponderantly uh, poorer folks. Uh, the replacement of richer people for poorer people, sorry, for poorer people with rich people into our cities. It is the reversal of white flight from the 1950s. This is the process of gentrification as we're living it today. It's why in all of our major cities, gentrification has become a site of struggle as a result of that. How do we fight back against that kind of a situation? Where again, in most of our major cities, Renters tend to be the majority of the population. They tend to be, again, the heart of the working class in a lot of our communities, especially the younger uh, uh, that we go, right? The strike, actually, is a very useful method. I myself have organized uh, quite a number of rent strikes in Los Angeles. Um, I have to say, when we started talking about rent strikes uh, within, for example, the LA Tenants Union that I'm a member of, uh, about seven years ago, we freaked a lot of people out uh, in talking about rent strikes because a lot of organizations, including we should say a lot of nonprofits that have been doing housing work for a long time, they thought it was a, a bad thing, it was a threat, and in particular it was because people were putting themselves on the line potentially to lose their homes. The response, of course, to any of us who organize around these issues is, is there anything worth you know, doing if there's not an element of risk to it? If you're really trying to keep people in their homes, you have to do whatever it takes to be able to keep people in their homes. But also, and more importantly, what choice do people have? We organizers in Los Angeles around tenant uh, issues, we always like to tell tenants when we're having uh, a tenant uh, meeting, right, the first time a tenant workshop, we always ask them, like, okay, suppose that you take a buyout from your landlord for $5,000 to leave your apartment. Sounds like pretty good, right? What if you accept $15,000, $20,000? For a working class person, that seems like a lot of money until they have to take into account taxes, until they have to take into account how expensive rent is, you know, if you move out of uh, an older unit. And I ask them, well, where are you gonna go after you uh, can't afford your rent, and where are you gonna go if you leave this house right now? And the answer, oftentimes, is silence from the other, from the other side, from the tenants, and or, I can't go anywhere else. It's gonna mean me moving two to three hours away, and in places, unfortunately, like California, it means leaving the state. And so the rent strike, the strike itself, is a powerful weapon. Why? Because uh, with landlords, in particular, these people want to make money. If you go on a rent strike, you are withholding that money in a very basic way. 
And if you can extend what that rent strike looks like, if you kind of drag it out as much as possible, and in particular in states where you have the legal option to be able to draw, draw that out or, or uh, you know, extend that period, the rent strike becomes a powerful weapon where every single month your landlord is not receiving that, met, that rent. If they try to sue you for an eviction, they have to pay expensive lawyers to be able to do that. And that gives you an opportunity then to organize around that issue. So the rent strike is a very important way in which uh, in housing, uh, increasingly a large number of people are starting to demonstrate the power of that. It is, I should say, a tactic all this time. The t-shirt that I'm wearing says tenant unionist and it actually shows uh, a number of folks in, I believe, Glasgow about a century ago in Scotland who went on rent strike. Uh, of course, in the 1920s uh, in New York, you know, a lot of folks there led the way on rent strikes as well. And now, again, in a lot of our urban areas, the rent strike is becoming, again, a weapon of choice to be able to bring to bear against uh, landlords who are increasingly corporatized. Your boss, very likely these days, if you work for a chain or a larger company, is actually private equity. Right? Your boss is increasingly these kind of like bizarre sorts of agglomerations of investors who buy up companies, who fire workers, who try to, you know, try to slim costs in these businesses. That same boss, though, is increasingly also your boss at home. The, your private equity boss at work is also your private equity landlord. You see that with famously companies like Blackstone the largest private equity firm in the world that is both, again, snapping up companies left, right, and center, and has also just created a new fund worth, uh, I think it's a total of $50 billion that they're gonna try to use to snap up housing across the country. They're not gonna do that to be able to sell it back to people uh, so that they can you know, become homeowners or the like. They're gonna snap up that housing to make all of us renters, right? And so this is why it's important increasingly for us to fight back uh, in particular when it comes to rent debt. The problem, of course, and I'll close on this, is that unlike other forms of debt, rent debt has an immediate, an immediate effect on people, right? If you owe money to your landlord, if you owe $1,000 to your landlord, he can evict you and you lose your housing. That is a way in which, again, the landlord holds a power over you, right? Over, again, that debt. You owe $10 to a landlord. I've literally seen landlords file evictions for $10 that a tenant owes them. They will go after you as a result of that. And so, again, I, a, a motto that I like to share with people all the time when it comes to housing issues, you cannot do politics alone, okay? Just like with the, the student debt strike. Join a tenant union. Increasingly, there are larger numbers of them, and in fact, in the handout that we have that you can, folks can pick up, we have a couple of links for folks to be able to find a tenant union in their neighborhood, but also I'm gonna challenge the folks in this room here. I don't just wanna talk theoretically about these issues. I want folks to leave this room empowered and feeling that they have to do something about the, around these issues. If there is no tenant union in your neighborhood, I challenge you to create one. Oh. You only need a handful of people to change the world and you can start by doing it in your community. So please, again, form a tenants union. And if you need some help in being able to do so, uh, we put it, our email there that you can contact me, in fact, uh, so that I could talk, try to either connect you to folks who are trying to do something similar to you in your neighborhood and or just give you practical organizing advice uh, all of you here can be organizers around housing and you should absolutely do it. Uh, that is the only way we're in which we're ever going to make housing a human right. All right, so I want to take a few minutes now and, and I will sort of hurry things along so that we can get to the next portion of this panel um, to talk about the ways that medical debt 
concretely appears um, as a feature of financialization uh, in the lives of, of people across this country. Um, over 100 million Americans are struggling with the cost of healthcare. Um, an enormous number of people claim that they forego healthcare treatment every year out of fear of the cost. So our healthcare system is quite literally uh, killing people. Um, and those who it doesn't kill, it traps in these cycles of debt that, that can become very quickly impossible to escape from. Um, and I, I just want to sort of reiterate what we've been saying about all these different types of household debt, which is that medical debt is fundamentally racist. It is an incredibly racist system that disproportionately affects black and brown people in this country. Um, and you know, it, it sort of heightens these health inequities and disparities that already exist um, to, to trap people in, in these impossible financial uh, situations and these impossible health situations, frankly. Um, and so the financialization of healthcare uh, appears in a number of different ways. Um, obviously, we see it in the pharmaceuticals industry. Um, we see it in the insurance industry, and we see it in the hospital industry, um, and the sort of broader provider industry. Um, and I think that you know one thing that is is interesting is like the the frequency within which we hear um, people in these industries, disruptors in these industries, disruptors, um, say things like you know we we can make it work. Um, it's sort of like what, what Amy was saying about this conference that they attended, where you know they were they were going to solve the the sort of hiccups with student loans by uh, you know figuring out refinancing. Um, you know you can't make it work. The system is is broken, and uh, and it's why we have to fight back against it. Um, and I I want to kind of focus briefly with with you know acknowledging that. Uh, the pharmaceuticals and insurance industries are, are places that are really ripe for looking at financialization of healthcare. Um, but I'd like to focus briefly on, on the hospital system, just to, to speak to some of the ways that uh, that this appears and, and is sort of um, more and more evident over the last couple of decades. Um, and you know, I mean, incidentally, at the same time as this panel, unfortunately, um, Gabe Wyman is, is doing a panel with uh, Ewok in one of the rooms near here, and, and he recently wrote a book. Um, called The Next Shift uh, on the Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America. And um, this, this book basically looks at the ways that the, the healthcare industry has replaced sort of more traditional industry. And I think this is something that's, that's sort of interesting to think about as we think about these analogies and relationships between a debtors movement and a labor movement, um, that these same employers, these hospitals that are uh, you know exploiting their workers that are underpaying their workers, especially service uh, employees, um, are are pursuing patients, low-income patients, um, black and brown patients, relentlessly for uh, debt that they cannot pay. And uh, the majority of, of hospitals in the United States, about like 60 to 65 percent, are nonprofits. Um, and I think probably this this crowd of people understands the sort of uh, that that built into the the term nonprofit is not actually like any any genuine kind of like holistic uh, gesture that the nonprofits in fact reap enormous profits they're just referred to as excess revenue over expenses um, instead instead of you know proper 
proper profits. And these nonprofit hospitals, um, at a quickening pace over the last few decades, have been engaging in mergers, um, engaging in acquisitions. There is just a, a tremendous amount of vertical integration and increasingly horizontal integration, too, um, among hospitals where, where different hospitals in the same metropolitan areas basically fold into one um, in a way that allows them basically to increase these excess revenue over expenses, to, to pay CEOs more, um, and to basically ensure that, that they get to set uh, the prices for for all patients in the region um, without any any threat of having a kind of lower cost option um, for all of the you know the necessary uh, you know caveats that that the question of lower cost in healthcare entails. And um, what is interesting about the role of these nonprofit hospitals in the growing medical debt crisis is the fact that. Under the Affordable Care Act, um, all nonprofit hospitals in the country are required to offer financial assistance to low-income patients, it's sometimes referred to as charity care, if folks have heard that phrase. Um, so patients who are making below a certain amount, a certain threshold of, of the poverty line. Um, and in a lot of states, this this you know this number is quite generous. You know, it can be 400%. Uh, of, of the federal poverty line, uh, where anyone under that amount is supposed to receive reduced cost care, anyone under 200% quite often is supposed to receive free care, um, and unsurprisingly, these institutions overwhelmingly do not make patients aware of this option. And so um, what I've seen over the last few years in medical debt organizing, what we've seen at, at the Debt Collective, um, as we talk to you know allies and partners across the country, is that um, we have patients who are legally entitled to financial assistance from, from their providers who are, who, who are having that information effectively withheld for them um, and who are then being pursued absolutely relentlessly by debt collectors, um, by lawsuits, by wage garnishments, by home liens. Um, and, and so, you know, this. This, this system of, of, of medical debt um, ensures basically that these hospitals, um, these nonprofit hospitals, get to keep these tremendous uh, tax breaks and financial incentives um, that ensure that they can pay their CEOs big cushy salaries, even as they go after their poorest patients for uh, for debts that stem from from necessary health procedures. Um, and I, I think Amy earlier was sort of speaking about this John Oliver episode um, where he was looking at, at medical debt um, and partnered with an organization called, called RIP Medical Debt, which some folks here might have, might have heard of. Um, they've been getting a lot of press over the last couple of years as, as medical debt has sort of like emerged um, as, a, as a real site of struggle and, and garnered a lot of uh, focus in the media. Um, and the, the sort of problem with, with this model, with their model, is that it relies on basically paying or buying debts on the, on the secondary debt market um, bundled and, and paying them off uh, for pennies on the dollar. And they, in this process, they entirely fail to organize uh, any of the people who, whose debts they're buying. There is no attempt to politicize the experience of debt. 
there is no attempt to draw a connection um, to the, the broader financial and economic situation that produces these debts. Um, and there, there is no attempt to basically build any kind of debtor power, any type of agency that would, that would have the effect of um, shifting things. And, and so uh, what different outfits like this, this is the most prominent one, um, but there are others as well, what they what they're doing and and sort of like what we're really sort of trying to offer a, a challenge to is um, ensuring that uh, you know the kind of the broader centrist liberal uh, mindset can feel like something is being done to address the medical debt crisis when when in fact um, what we're what we're what they're doing is is really just kind of um, sustaining a, a system making it palatable. Um, to, to many people that that is fundamentally cruel um, and and that you know that relies on uh, the extraction of, of wealth from from households from communities um, and you know especially from low-income communities and communities of color um, something else that that I think maybe is, is for another panel another time but that's that's quite interesting is also the increasing role of private equity in the healthcare system and this this appears um, in, in in many different ways that are sort of uh, kind of counterintuitive or, or unexpected and what has happened over the last 15 years or so is we've actually seen a lot of private equity firms partnering with these nonprofit hospitals um, which seems like something that should be illegal it's not uh, and they can basically claim uh, these these profits and they don't need to sort of couch them in the form of salaries or, or kind of vertical integration efforts um, and and basically turn this wealth that's that's sort of like you know generated from the, the act of, of providing people medical care um, into enormous returns on investment um, for for the financial sector um, and we've seen this you know I've been speaking about hospitals but it's it's increasingly visible in uh, the sort of assisted care um, nursing nursing home facility sector and uh, and it's something that I know that SEIU 1199 has also been looking into quite closely and that we're hoping to to do some organizing with them around um, so what we're in the process of, of trying to do here is is to expand the debt collectors work on, on medical debt to kind of recognize the ways that it interacts with student debt, that it interacts with housing debt, that it interacts with carceral debt, that it interacts with auto debt, that all of these debts are, are interrelated and um, play against each other to, to basically trap people in these untenable circumstances. Um, and to continue to grow this, this mass debtors movement that, that makes explicit these relationships um, among different forms of debt as mechanisms of financial extraction and control. And um, I, I feel like it's, it's probably important here to acknowledge that the medical debt crisis is, of course, a symptom of, of the lack of a universal public uh, health care system. You know, it's, it's one of the most concrete and destructive ways that this absence appears in people's lives. Um, and, and so the horizon of, of this work that, that we're sort of beginning to do on medical debt is, of course, a, a fully socialized healthcare system. Um, that is designed to be reparative and free at the point of service uh, for everyone. 
And that's, I, I think, probably most of us can agree that that's the only real solution here. It, it means stripping the profit motive from healthcare altogether, whether it's acknowledged as profit or whether it's uh, framed in these shaky nonprofit terms of, of excess revenue. Um, and, and I think the question is basically, how do we get here? How do we get to uh, centralized medicine? Um, and I think a number of folks on the sort of, broadly speaking, the left have focused on the path to this as being by advocating for, for Medicare for all legislation. Um, and I, of course, you know, this is a component of it, but I, I'd like to, to sort of pose the challenge that advocating for Medicare for all is not actually um, the, the way that, that we get to socialized medicine, at least not as an initial step. Um, what we've seen at the Debt Collective is that it's, it's been what many of us here have probably seen is that it's very difficult to organize people around legislative measures. Um, they're abstract, they're distant, many folks often rightly suspect that they will be weakened by the time that they reach any type of legislative floor. Um, and they're fundamentally campaigns rather than movements, and, and maybe this is the most important distinction to make, uh, which means that when they're over, there's there's nothing that's been built to last. Uh, and that's what we need. Um, we can't have these isolated campaigns. What we need is really a broad movement that, that sort of uh, incorporates political education, that, that you know builds enough solidarity that people are fighting for those with debts that they don't carry. Um, and I think that the way to build power, as we've been saying, is by speaking to people's experiences. Um, and the immediacy and familiarity of medical debt offers, um, I think, an opportunity for us to organize that may be way more effective um, than attempts to organize around legislation. Uh, in the direction of, of socialized medicine, uh, where connections to people's lives are, are often less explicit. And I think that we can, you know, by talking to people about their experience of medical debt, and for that matter, their experience of all kinds of debt, we can actually agitate people into action and build the power that we need on the left um, to, to really change this, this economic structure. Um, and uh, I, I do want to note that this requires us to break through the, the shame that people feel, um, the, the stigma and the insecurity um, and, and the, the fear that they feel when they're talking about debt. It, it requires us to talk about debt. Um, it requires us to, to sort of be honest with each other and to um, identify its source in our financialized economy rather than in our you know, individual decisions. Um, and that starts with us as socialists and as organizers being willing to talk about our own debts, um, which I know we saw from the show of hands earlier, most of us have, um, and to, to help others get to a point where they feel comfortable doing so. Um, and so a tactic that we've used uh, in the student debt movement and that, that Amy has you know, facilitated a number of these uh, is that of the, the debtors assembly, what we call a debtors assembly. Um, and I, I want to pass it to Renee to introduce this idea, um, and, uh, and we'll go from there. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Um, and I'm really glad. We didn't want to just take Q&A on this panel. We really wanted to make it a kind of a practical thing, right? We wanted to make it so that you folks understood and model a little bit what you can do in your like community, in your own spaces, to be able to get people talking, right, about it. I want people to leave the panel today again wanting to take action and not just know more, right? 
Uh, and so this idea of the debtors assembly, it really comes to the heart of why it is that we organize around the question of debt, right? How is it that we do it? We do it also to build consciousness. This is what a, a debtors assembly is, but this is also what a lot of organizing meetings should and are about, right? To build consciousness and practice among debtors uh, for a lot of people who do not see themselves as uh, people who have debt, right? They, they see themselves as people who are living their lives, trying to get by in life, who also happen to have debt. And what we're trying to tell them, we're trying to like get them to understand is that they, have, they are debtors, that they are people who hold this debt, but they are others, quite literally tens of millions of people who are in the same uh, space. And so this is an impromptu version of a debtors assembly. We're going to do it a little bit differently by having you guys break out into, you folks break out into smaller groups as opposed to in larger ones. I know I just saw some surprise eyes, but not worry, it's going to be good. The point is, as Lindsay said, to destigmatize, right, what we mean by debt. We want you folks to talk about it a little bit. Uh, this is a big barrier in any form of organizing, getting people to move away from their shame. As a tenant organizer, the example is always, I don't want to talk about this issue. I don't want to talk about the harassment from my landlord, the bad conditions that I'm living in with roaches in my apartment, and I don't want any problems. Well, you know, I hate to break it to you, the problems are already there, right? And this is why we get people talking so that they understand that there aren't, they are not alone. The only thing I'm going to ask of you folks right now as we break out into the small groups I want you to listen to each other. In, this is not a critique of all socialists, but I understand it totally. We like to talk a lot. I like to talk a lot. <laughs> Let's listen to each other. And I want you to be able to reflect back on what people are saying. That's the only way in which we really genuinely get to build or have a, a slight foundation for solidarity. I'm going to now ask, though, Amy, uh, if she can help us along here a little bit by briefly discussing her uh, story, her example of being a Corinthian debt striker as a model for you folks to do so. Um, so I actually went to the Art Institute, um, but I was uh, one of the um, debt, like major debt groups that came, um, debt strike groups that came after Corinthian. Um, I attended the Illinois Institute of Art in Schaumburg, um, and my school is now a field. Uh, um, they completely demolished the building um, because my college operator was a shady for-profit college operator um, called Education Management Corporation. Um, my school was sued for $11 billion while I was enrolled um, for fraud, and the government gave them a slap on the wrist and only made them pay $93 million, so literally less than a penny on the dollar, and they didn't have to admit to any guilt. Nobody got any relief um, from that. Um, when I enrolled in 2007, I had no sort of frame of reference for what college was. I was the first generation in my family to go to college. Um, both of my parents, um, I have a truck driver dad and my mom works at the post office. They didn't go to college. I didn't have any sort of understanding about what college was. I didn't really know the difference between for-profit, non-profit, or anything like that. Um, I just kept on hearing, you know, I didn't even want to go to college when I was in high school. I entered the workforce right away. And people kept on telling me, like, you need to go to college, like, you have this talent, like, go to college, go to college, go to college. And finally, I was, like, in this dead-end job where I was getting five-cent raises, um, which is another way that, you know, kind of these issues are intersectional. You know, your job is paying you nothing, so then you feel like you have to go into debt for college. Um, so I was really just trying to find an opportunity for myself. And about halfway through is when I started to realize that was not true at that school. Everything that they told me was a lie. Um, and I kind of, I tried to drop out. I told my mom I had a conversation with her. I was like, this school is a scam. And she looked at me and she was like, how is this school a scam? Like, the government is giving you loans for this school. Like, we, 
you know, if everybody believes that if you're getting loans for a school, and it must be legitimate, like why else would the government give you loans for this school? Um, well, the reason is because a lot of people in the government are also profiting off of these for-profits. They're profiting off of, you know, they have financial stakes in, you know, the, the creditors and things like that. Um, so I graduated in 2010, and I was pregnant when I graduated. My financial aid officer, um, or actually my student advisor came up to me, and she told me to sign this piece of paper while I was setting up my portfolio for this portfolio show. Um, the paper basically said the school would not help me to get a job because I was pregnant and my pregnancy, my, when I gave birth, would be in between the time that they would get me a job. So I graduated, um, $78,000 in debt. I now have $126,000 in debt. Um, and I only paid like $37, I think, because I didn't want to pay. I realized that the school was a scam and like from a moral standpoint, I was like, I cannot pay this. If I pay that, that legitimizes what they've done to me. So I took another tactic. I deferred. I went on forbearance. I was really fighting alone um, by myself and it was depressing. I went through bouts where I you know, was suicidal. I went through bouts where I was living in my car. Um, I could not pay the loans. I even filed for bankruptcy about six months after I graduated um, on a kind of negligible amount of debt, but the lawyer didn't even advise me otherwise because he just wanted money from me too. So um, I was left in a really, really dark place. I was writing to my senators, writing to my state AG. Nobody was responding. I would get basic form letters back. Like when you write to a senator, they give you this you know, standardized document that just changes your name at the top and says, we hear what you're saying, but then doesn't even address anything you've actually said. Um, and it wasn't really until I met with the Debt Collective in 2015, started organizing with other for-profit college students that I realized this wasn't me. It wasn't, I did not fail. This school system failed. And then when I discovered that the school system failed, I discovered that it was like this whole systemic thing within the for-profit colleges. Um, and then I realized that that was only a symptom of a much bigger issue, which is the financialization of everything that should be public goods. Um, and where I used to be, you know, very in, in like a very dark place, now when I talk about my debt, uh, I get kind of excited because I see so many possibilities with it. Um, and that kind of, that all starts with just destigmatizing, talking about it, and realizing that you're not alone. Um, because it's a very dark place when you feel like that debt is just on you and that you've done some sort of who knows what to deserve that debt. Because none of us deserve to be in debt um, for basic goods and things that should be, you know, seen as public goods. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.